you need to look at company and going, how did they get to 60 million? Or what did they do? And tap into their skills and understanding and experience and culture, which you can do in a peer group, or have a coach who can say, look, you're doing brilliantly over here. That's fantastic. But tell me about how you're doing over there, because there seems to be a bit of a blind spot over there. What are you doing about that? I think it's help, having help. We tend to think we can do it all ourselves, and we really can't. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm talking with and learning from Ian Windle. Ian is group chairman at Vistage, a peer board, global peer board organization. He's also a TEDx speaker, executive coach, team builder, author, podcast host. And we're talking about his obsession today. We're talking about leadership, developing leaders, having a growth mindset, building high performing teams, what being in a peer organization like Vistage or YPO or EO is like and, and the value you get, what you can learn from that that you can then take into your own organization, how to solve problems either in a peer organization or with coaching. And we talk about building trust, vulnerability, and how to help that drive your business, how to create and cultivate a growth mindset. Some questions, here we are, we're coming to the end of 2021. And towards the end of our conversation, Ian's got some questions that you as a leader should be asking of your executive team as you sit looking around the table at them or virtually put them in your mind's eye. What questions should you be asking them as we end 2021 about 2022? And some great book recommendations as well. I really enjoyed chatting to Ian. If he hadn't been heading off to Yorkshire, I could easily have spoken to him all day. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Well, my name's Ian Wendell, and I love leadership. Uh, I spend most of my, uh, l- l- the last 20 years, really, working with leaders, coaching leaders, mentoring leaders, speaking to large groups of leaders, working with leadership teams, blogging on leadership, doing a podcast on leadership called the Gritty Leaders Club. And the whole subject absolutely fascinates me because it, it's about people. It's about a growth mindset. It's about learning more every day. It's becoming a better version of yourself. It's about surrounding yourself with great people. And when you do all that, you tend to build a great business. And what business are you in? That's a great question. What business am I in? I'm in the, I'm in the personal growth business in a way because um, – if when I coach people, uh, there have been a few times when somebody's approached me, uh, usually that way round, and said, 
I want to be coached. I'm running a business. I, I really think I need a coach. And I, I've been told you could help me. And if they don't have a growth mindset, if they don't believe they should read a book, uh, listen to a TED talk, uh, tune into podcasts, become a better version of themselves next year, uh, then it doesn't really work. Um, because, you know, I'm going to be talking to them, uh, asking them questions like you are to me now. They're going to come back in a three weeks' time, a month's time, two months' time, and I'm going to say, so what's happened? And they're going to say, not very much. And I want people to come back and say, the people I coach who are the best, turn up. They say, Ian, right, today we've got an hour together, two hours together, whatever it is, these are the things that are troubling me. And we get deep into them and we work them through and we challenge, I challenge the person and they go away and they take some action and they try some new stuff. And that it's got to be about growth mindset. And uh, so I, I think, I'm, yeah, I think it's an interesting question. I think I'm in the people growth business. It's interesting because I've been doing deep depth into, dipping into neuroscience. And uh, the guy I was listening to the other week, on a podcast was saying, look, your brain is plastic till you're about 24, 25. And then unless you're deliberately learning new things, you lose the ability to have plasticity. And if you think about when you, maybe when your children were learning to walk, there is a, his, his contention is as, as human beings, and I think it feels like it goes through into organizations, is that you've got to have error and there's, and there's an error rate and, and a response to error and that you learn faster the more errors you can spot, right? And so if you're a fast-growing organization, you're going to need a lot of errors to, to, to learn from. Otherwise, you're going to go off track. And so, I th- you, know, I, um, you know, so when I meet people and they say they don't read, but they want help, like you, it's like, well, your how where's your where's your error rate how are you measuring that what are you measuring yourself against compared to what and and he said look brain plasticity doesn't matter what you learn as long as you're learning something you could be learning spanish but as long as you're challenging yourself to where are you now where are you going and and some measure measurably measurable improvement then you know there's no silver bullet so it's it's just not there Absolutely. I agree. Um, One of the things, uh, so at the end of my book, I wrote, uh, I thought, oh, I also end it in a list of things that are really important for leaders, you know, because everyone does that, don't they? So I thought, what are those things? And one of the things I put down was lose more often. Great leaders lose more often. And, and, you know, it's, um, it kind of got reinforced me with the, with the amazing um, Michael Jordan Netflix uh, documentary or, or film, really, about Michael Jordan. And and I'm not a basketball fan at all, but watching that, um, incredible series, beautifully produced. And, um, and he talks about the amount of times he's missed a shot, you know, the amount of times he's been given the final shot in a game and, and fudged it. And, you know, one of the things I think about growth mindset is, as you've said, you've got to understand that to grow and change, you've got to stretch and go outside your comfort zone. And therefore, you're not always going to win. You're going to lose. You're going to fail. You're going to. And how do you what do you call that? How do you relabel that? You know, and I think the best coaches in the world, you look at Jurgen Klopp after, you know, he's coached Liverpool or um 
any of them, uh, Pep Guardiola, um, or you go to Formula One and, and, and listen to them talk about a race, they failed again over and over and over and over again, but they relabel it, they look at it, they grow, they move on, and they get better. And that's the only way we get better. I'd looked recently at, at you know, as I get older, what phys- what sport should I potentially take up? And somebody said, well, you should take up tennis. It's really good for you. You know, and then and then find people better than you and just lose. You know, like people who are just a bit better than you, which means you are, you are likely never to win. And frankly, what are you winning? You're not winning anything if you win. But but that was that was the advice. You know, find a tennis club, start playing tennis and lose as often as you possibly can because then, you know, through that you're getting better. And so how do you encourage that in people? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I believe I, I've got to be a bit like a leader. Leaders have got to go first. So when I'm coaching everyone, I can't be the person who's running a, a, a rubbishy organization or doesn't read a book or doesn't stretch themselves or doesn't learn and grow. I've got to do all those things really well. And I can't sit here and say, have you read this book if I haven't read it? Or, you know, how are you growing yourself next year if I'm not growing myself next year? So I've got to be, a, I believe, a bit of a role model as leaders have got to be for their businesses. And then with new people who perhaps haven't um, got this embedded in their persona, it will be small steps. It will be a little bit of encouragement. It will be giving them a book. It will be recommending uh, a TED Talk for them to listen to. And the most wonderful thing is when three months later they come back to me and say, Ian, have you seen this TED Talk? And I think, hallelujah. (laughs) It's a bit like, you know, teaching somebody to fish they don't need me anymore. Well, they, they often want me, but, you know, they've actually got on this thing themselves. They've realized that this learning stuff is such fun. And you, the more you learn and then you apply it, that's really cool. And I think once they get on that, you know, I can coach them. I can give them a little tidbit here and there and suddenly they can do it themselves. Which is fantastic. It's interesting because I, I was speaking to somebody the other day and I think often people get promoted to being a manager because they can do the work, you know, so they're the, they're the, they're the best salesperson or they're the best software developer. And as this organization grows, somebody says, well, rather than hiring somebody from outside, or maybe we've only got three or four people. So we don't play a coach and, and they think their job is to, well, because their success has come from doing the work. They think it's do more work or help their team to do the work. And I said to somebody the other day who felt overwhelmed, I said, you know, your job is to make yourself redundant. And she said, what do you mean? I said, well, your job is not to do the work of the team. It's so that the team can do the work without you. It's to bring up the people in the team so you can go do something else in the organization. And, and it was like I'd flicked a switch in her head. Like it, didn't make, it didn't make tomorrow more less, less overwhelming. But when I checked in a week later, she's like, oh, I've now... Like there's a hundred things I've done differently in the last week as a result of that. And and is now looking up and not looking down. It just, just fab. I think that's the big thing, isn't it? That's the big breakthrough for leaders. And, you know, I spend a lot of time starting to work with leaders who are doing so much stuff that's in their comfort zone that they used to do, that they used to get rewarded for. And I always say, you can say to people, you're a manager, but it's only other people who can say to you, you're a leader. So if people are saying this guy's a leader or this girl's a leader, then they're a leader. 
but you could have manager on your card. That's fine. Um, and it was Peter Drucker who said, leaders do the right things and managers do things right. <laughs> so, le- so leaders have to figure out what the right things to do are. They have to be looking across over the horizon. They have to think big picture. They have to think long term. They have to think visionary, strategic. Where are we going to go with this business? What are we going to do? What markets, what geographies, what people? They have to be doing all that thinking. And way too often, if their head's down and they're in the weeds and they're doing the doing, well, who's doing the thinking then? Well, it's funny you mentioned that because I'm taken back. I interviewed a guy called Gareth Chick who – when I had him on the podcast, he was talking about what he does. And he said, he said, I basically, I, I work in companies like Google where people are a newly minted SVP. So, you know, big organization, but, but high up. He said, and I teach them to ask questions to which they don't know the answer. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's, and it's that it's like, you know, because it's, you are now out of your comfort zone. If you're asking a question to which you don't know the answer now, now you're, you're, you're getting other people to do the thinking and and you're in uncharted territory and it it's just um i suppose it has to be an awakening thing in people before that before that they're just doing a job i know i think that's right and questioning is so powerful i do a session with with emerging leaders and leaders on on coaching but not because i think they all should be coaches and trainers coaches but because the power of adopting a coaching approach to leadership And of course, a coaching approach to leadership is rather than saying to your marketing director, I'd really like you to do this piece of work for me. I think it would be great if you could do this piece of work for me. You say to them, here's the context for the environment we're living in at the moment. This is what our marketing looks like. Tell me where do you think we're going to take this over the next few years and what you're going to be doing along that journey. And you get them to the point where they're saying, do you know what? We need to do a piece of work around this and it needs to be around these areas. And by asking very powerful questions and setting up the context, what you want is people to come to the conclusion that they want to do the piece of work that you want them to do. And that's where they own it. And that's where they take it away. And that's where they implement it. And I can't remember who said it was um, probably many people that, Great leaders ask many more questions than average leaders. And, and questioning is where the power lies, right? So if I ask you a question, like, why do you wear a blue shirt? Suddenly, all you can think of is a blue shirt, right? And you're thinking, why did I get this blue shirt? Who bought this for me? Did I buy it for myself? Is it? And you start, so I'm controlling your mind now, because all we've done is we've focused you on the blue shirt. Um, whereas if I'm just a- answering questions, you're leading the conversation, the power lies with you. And I think, Leaders don't quite get this who think that they need to know the answers. And to your point, the best questions really stretch people and they give you answers maybe you didn't know the answer to. Yeah. Well, the other thing is that if you say to people, uh, and it's a question I have to attribute to Henry Stewart, who wrote the Happy Happy Manifesto, he, I've seen him do this in you know with hundreds of people in the room and he says, put your hands up. Uh, if you did your best work whilst being managed. <laughs> I'm yet to see anybody put their hand up, right? Because sort of, it's a bit like being sold to, being managed. Yeah. I mean, it, it, there's just the whole concept of being managed. I mean, not being a manager necessarily, but if you say, would you like to be managed? Most people, it, it sort of, it robs them of self-esteem. It robs them of self-worth. You know, autonomy is a big driver from Dan Pink. 
And so then people, then he sort of says to people, when did you do their best work? And they say, well, you know, when I had some constraints, you know, so I knew what the, I knew what the guardrails were and I couldn't injure myself. And then with, you know, once I knew the rules, I was, I was able to do work on my own. I was self, um, self-directed and it's just, you know, to me, that's coaching, you know, that's stop being manager, start coaching your team. There's another great thing, which was a, a little study where they, they got people to pick lottery numbers. So I give you a lottery ticket, it's got five numbers on it, you know, it's worth a pound. But if I ask you to pick your own numbers, people, people had to pay five pounds to get them to relinquish the lottery ticket. Well, like you, you're still 14 million to one or whatever it is, but, but people were so much more emotionally attached to the things that they had come up with themselves. As you say, what's the marketing plan for the next year? Yeah. I know what the answer might be, but then it's not your plan. What else do you see people struggling with? Um, I think leaders, well, I suppose the big thing for most leaders is they struggle with the amount of work they've got on. And um, the one thing that they have got control over is where they spend their time. And I'll say to leaders early on in the process of working with them, how do you spend your time? And they think it's a trick question. <laughs> well, I'm leading the business here. And I go, yeah, I know that. But um, tell me exactly how you spend your time. So I get them to draw a circle on a large bit of paper. And I say, that's 100% of your time. Now, I don't want you to do this scientifically. I just want you to divide that into the big chunks of how you spend your days. You know, is it strategic work? Is it developing your people? Is it working on a product that you're launching? Is it, what is it? Just, just write it down. Is it being an ambassador for the business, you know, out there doing keynotes about who you do, who you are and what you do? And they they do this. They draw a circle and they start dividing up. And it takes a long time to do. I mean, you know, usually it takes uh, even that first draft of a circle and how you spend your time takes half an hour, 45 minutes just to figure out this is right. And then they start changing it and, and then they can't account for 10 percent of their time. But they end up with a <laughs> with a circle. And I say, so that's how you spend your time. And they go, yep, that is that. That's pretty much how I spend my time, Ian. And I say, okay, is that how a leader of your business should be spending their time now? And I've never had one leader say yes. So they look at it and they go, do you know what? I probably should be doing way less of this over here, and probably more over here in the strategic thinking, developing my top team <laughs> piece of work. <laughs> And I say, that's interesting. Uh, um, uh, it's interesting that. And, and so, and then, then another way of using that is to say, how, how, tell me how quick's your business growing? How fast is it growing? And, you know, most people actually coming up COVID that I'm working in, their businesses are growing like mad. Um, you know, there's so much consumer demand. There's so much money in the economy. There's so much B2B business going on. Um, in fact, you know, the de demand is half the problem and not just supply. And, and so businesses are growing really fast. So I say to them, okay, in three years' time, based on your growth plans and your vision, how big are you going to be? And they say, whoa, whoa, uh, well, we're going to be, we're 10 million now. Um, when I work it through three years' time, we're probably going to be 30 million. And how many people are you going to have? And they say, well, you know, we're going to go from 30 to 90 people. And they, they sketch out some numbers on the side of that page of the circle. I say, okay, to run a business at three times your size, now look at your circle. 
have you got to change what's in that circle? Never mind that you're going to change it today because we've just we've just agreed that it's not what you should be doing. But what should you be doing in three years' time to run a business that looks like the one you've just described to me? And they do what I've just done, which is pause and think, oh, yeah, I've got to change. And we're back to growth mindset again because what we're back to is getting another bit of paper, drawing another circle, figuring out what they need to do in the future, and then figuring out what am I doing now and how do I need to change, grow, adapt, then what team do I need around me? Because this is a new world I've just described, which you know requires me to do something else and new people on the team. So, yeah, I think it's it's this bit about this aha about I've got choices about how I spend my time and are they in the right place? And often I find leaders are not spending the time in the right place. Yep. It's funny, isn't it? As, as you were talking about that example, going from sort of 30 people to 90 people, I was thinking, you know, I've often that you had that conversation happens and I say, so how many managers might we need at 90 people? And they go, oh, okay, well, we might need about 15. Okay. And do you want to promote them from within or do you want to hire them from, oh yeah, no, we'd like to promote from in. So, and so um, who runs, he runs your management development program. Mm. And there's this, this deadly silence. Cause like until now we didn't need one. Now all of a sudden there's a thing. <laughs> and so that's, uh, and they're looking around thinking, who could I give that to? And there's, there's no, there's nobody in the organization. And that's why businesses just end up getting into the sort of that profit trap. Their revenue's growing, growing, but their profits aren't because yeah. they just, they've got no plan. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, you need people to challenge you on this stuff. Um, I, I think that's the, you know, as I said to you before we came on air, as it were, I, I do too much coaching because I enjoy it. I really love it. And I do, but I do too much of it. And, um, <laughs> and when you draw your own circle, yeah, you've got too much coaching, too much coaching on your circle. I have. Um, but I always say to any leader, you know, if I'm not, co- if I meet somebody and they're a leader and, you know, they're not being coached, I say, you need a coach, you need a coach. You've got to have a coach because otherwise, who are you talking to? You're talking to maybe a partner. You're talking to your top team. Um, and the top team are telling you probably for the most part, yes, boss, you're doing a good job. And you probably don't want to take too many of your problems home to your partner. There's only so much so you're interested in. <laughs> exactly. So who is coming in and asking you the challenging questions day in, day out to keep you moving forward and getting better? And so, I, you know, I think, I mean, I didn't know much about coaching 10 years ago, but now I think it's not so much of a secret in the UK as it used to be. And the, in the US, it's been there for a long time, you know, everyone having a coach. But I think in the UK most people I know of have heard of it or are doing it or are, you know, receiving it. And so I think you've got to have, you've got to have somebody out there. Well, the danger often I find that people have come across where they're talking to their existing team, particularly that, you know, um, Quicksilver entrepreneur, shiny penny thing is they think they're having a conversation with their team and their team think they're being told to do something. Yeah. And so the team say he keeps changing his mind. Yeah. And the entrepreneur just says, well, I, it wasn't really a fully formed thing. I just wanted to talk to somebody, uh, talk to somebody about it. And it's like, how do we separate these two things? And certainly, you know, you find yourself filling a gap there as a coach with, I'm thinking about this thing, but before I share it with anybody else, That's right. tell don't, me if this is a good idea. Don't think out loud too much with your top team. <laughs> <laughs> it, it may come back to bite you. Um, and so, look, Ian, if people are listening to this and they have never been to Vistage, yeah. what's your what's your advice? 
because that's another way that's another way to get input isn't it from from a, yeah. an organization like vistage i think peer groups are phenomenally good why is that because well, the Vistage model, which I came across uh, 11, no, 12 years ago, when I was a member of the Academy for Chief Executives, which was eventually bought by Vistage. Um, so I was a member. I was in a group of peers um, who were running businesses, uh, and I was walking, and none of them competed. That's the key thing. So they're all, they're all growing businesses, and nobody competes around the table. And a bit like the sort of Patrick Lencioni five dysfunctions of a team model, Basically, it's based on creating high levels of trust uh, in a safe environment that allows you to challenge and be challenged, get to the really knotty problems on the table and walk away being held accountable by a group of people um, for something you've decided to do because of the creativity in the room and the ideas you've had as you've gone through. And I think Vistage gives you that in abundance. So I've, I've had people in my Vistage group, I've got a CEO group, so people running businesses from three to 60, 70 million. Um, and half of the group I am running now, which I see every month for a full day, started with me nine and a half years ago. And half of them have sort of switched and changed and a few have draw- joined along the way. You know, I've got 14 in the group at the moment, um, which is extraordinary when you think about it. So I've got people in that group who for every month put a whole day aside to turn up, hear a speaker uh, for the most part, and then get issues that they may have or others around the table processed in a way that we know we can get to the heart of the issue, we can come up with ideas, then we can ask them what they're going to do, and we can give them ideas back, and then we can hold them accountable as a team. Um, And it's the the power of that when people join and they walk away and I say, how was it for you, that first meeting? And they just they just say, well, it's extraordinary. I, I, I've never seen trust and challenge like that in a group before. And it, it's always the case. And I know it's interesting because what often happens in a Vistage group, people join and they spend a year, year and a half, and they say to me, Ian, this is amazing. I've got way more trust, transparency, safety and challenge here, where I come for a day a month, than I've got in my leadership team back. <laughs> yeah, it's true, and and have not a shred of. They can't see the irony in that conversation in in saying that out loud at all. <laughs> no, 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 and uh, and of course, why is that? Well, one of the reasons for that is you're not working together, and you can come in and be totally honest and transparent. The other the other reason probably for that is. We spend a huge amount of time Vistage building trust between people, uh, getting to know each other, showing vulnerability, opening up. And I think that piece is something that leaders sometimes are fearful about in their own teams because you've got to show vulnerability as the leader first. Again, leaders go first. And if you're not doing that and you're not showing that I'm not perfect and that I'm going to screw up as well as anyone else around the table, but also I'm willing to be vulnerable in another way, which is I'm going to take a risk. I'm going to go and pitch for a client we might not have or try or go with a new product we want to release or stand on stage in front of a thousand people and talk about the business or whatever the vulnerability might be in that area, um, which will encourage other people to open up and and, and, and show really who they are. You know, And I think... Um, so I think that's the piece that sometimes people forget that we've developed 
very well and very deeply in a Vistage group. And sometimes they haven't devoted enough time to doing that in their own leadership teams. The other thing is that, I don't know, if there's a sort of a, I know David Horsiger will tell me there are eight pillars of trust, but, you know, if you take the simple sort of three pillars of trust, one of which is character, then that's obviously there with your organization. And and people caring for each other is definitely there. But that competency in role thing, right? As you said, you're not working together. So hmm. um, I'm, I'm, I make no judgment about the other people in the room about their ability to run their business because we're all different. And so you, you have made it slightly easier than, as you say, than the people that you're working with. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yes. But the ego piece, is it because it's peers as opposed to I'm the CEO and this is my team and this is my business? Is it easier for people to who at work find would i mean it must be find that a challenge that with it with a in a community of peers they're able that their ego isn't 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 part of the equation i i I, absolutely right i think that's true i think it's very true i think vestige is a very good testing ground to test your own vulnerability and your own ability to challenge in a good way in a way that doesn't insult anyone in a way that um, people will take on board because you've developed that trust and then to take that those principles back into your team. And I do work with a lot of private individual, a lot of private teams where that's what we're trying to do. I'm working with the CEO and the team to say, look guys, before we get anywhere else, before we start to get really challenging, before we get to the real nub of what you need to be discussing, we've got to show up and be vulnerable and open and transparent and honest and trustworthy. And we've got to do all that. So I, I, you know, I put them through various activities and exercises to get them to open up with each other so that they really know each other really well. And then we start to be open. And then for the leader to show they've created this psychological safety around the table. So if somebody does something wrong or says something out of order or tries something and it fails, they're going to put an arm around their shoulder and say, look, I'm really pleased you went for that. Let's look at how we can improve that the next time you do it. And, and, and that, you know, all these things you can try in a Vistage environment or a peer group environment and then take them back and, you know, try them in your business. Yeah, it's phenomenal. I've, I, I think I said to you, I, was, I said to you before we came on air, you know, clients of number of clients of mine are either, you know, in Vistage or have been in Vistage mm. and seen the power that it's had for them in their, in their business. Um, Ian, in your book, The Leadership Map, available where all good books are sold. <laughs> what are the problems you're trying to help people solve? Well, I, interesting. So if I go back to why did I even write a book, um, I was a Vistage chair and doing all my private work, and I, I had the great privilege of seeing loads of speakers. And the other thing was, because I'm a consultant previously in a different life, I used to come into a new person joining a Vistage group, a new CEO, and I'd go back to their office on the first couple of occasions and I'd sit down and I'd say tell me how the business runs you know tell me about the top team have you got a purpose a vision values strategy what your strategic priorities what do your KPIs look like how do you run your meetings how how high performing your leadership team tell me about your culture and so I get I want to get right into you know how is this business working um and once they pause for breath you know i'd write it all down and get an understanding of it and i think that's really important if you're going to coach you've got to understand as a business coach you've got to understand how the business works and so i started asking all these questions then i started watching speakers come in to vistage and i thought maybe i've got something to add here you know maybe there is something 
where I could pull all these thoughts I've got about running a business together. Because by by then I was five years into being a chair and I've done a lot of work with corporates as well as SMEs. And I thought there's something I could pull together here that might be useful for the Vistage community. And that's where it started before the book. So I started to pull together what I called the leadership map and I started to pull together three workshops and they had you know four sort of subject areas in each workshop. And then I started running those and um, I was doing well and they were getting giving me good scores, inviting me back, which was great. And then one day I, sh- I showed up to a group and I started presenting one of the workshops and somebody put their hand up and said, where's the book, Ian? And I said, what do you mean, where's the book? And he said, well, you've got all this content. You, you're, you're giving us so much content on this stuff. Why, why haven't you put this in a book? And I said, great challenge. <laughs> um and to be honest, it was a it was a bit of a limiting belief, you know, to use a coaching term. I never saw myself as an author. I saw myself as a coach, a speaker, and a leadership developer, and so on. Um, and then I had to sort of take check and sit back and go, well, maybe I could put this in a book. So I, I started writing a book, and and then like lots of authors will tell you. Um, yeah, well, I've got a book, and it could be out in a couple of years, you know, or a year. And I thought, it was getting to be like that, I'll be honest. And a good friend of mine said to me one day, how are you doing with the book? And I gave him that classic answer. Well, you know, I'm doing okay, but it's going to be a while yet. And he said, I've got a publisher I could introduce you to. So I thought, I need to take some of my own medicine here. So I, I got in touch with um, Alison Jones, uh, who's at this uh, amazing publisher that I'm working with, Practical Inspiration Publishing. She said to me, well, what have you got? And I filled in numerous forms about the kind of structure of the book and all the rest. And she came back to me and said, this is great. Uh, You've got six months to write it. And literally, she gave me a timeline. She said, you're going to have finished it by then and um, get on with it. You know, and and it was fantastic. It's the only way I would have written the book, I'll be honest. I needed a timeline. I needed to focus. I needed to put loads of time aside because it takes forever. And it was cathartic and it was great because I researched way more than the subjects I already knew about. It gave me a chance to really indulge my passion for this this thing called leadership, read more books, look at more TED Talks, listen to more podcasts and bring it all together. And what have I ended up with? I first of all was going to call it, you know, a blueprint for leaders in how to run a business. Um, And we went round in circles on the title and eventually the leadership map seemed the obvious title for it. And it was actually Alison who said, uh, we talked about subtitles and between us, um, she has some great input. Between us, we ended up with the, it's, the subtitle is The Gritty Guide to Strategy That Works and People Who Care. And, and I think that's what it is. It's a guide. It tells you how to run a business. It tells you about strategy. Um, but one of the big things about leadership, and you said it earlier, is that Great leaders show they care about their people and their businesses. And so, yeah, it's about that as well. Yeah, fantastic. Ian, what is it that you now know that you wish you'd known earlier? Oh, I think I wish I'd known earlier that, um, that I think going back to what I said earlier, that, um, that coaches existed, that I could get help. Honestly, I, I ran a business for nine years and the, and the help I had was from a board in Sweden who were fine, but they weren't there every day and they were over in Sweden and they basically told me how you asked me how I'd done that month. Then I had a fairly inexperienced 
group in the UK I worked with, and I include myself in that. I was inexperienced in running a business. I had been in the right place at the right time, promoted to be MD, and and did did my best. But gosh, could I have done with a coach, a leadership coach, a peer group? you know, books are one thing. Yeah, I really believe in reading books and stuff, but you need to see it. You need to look at company and going, how did they get to 60 million? You know, I work, or how did they get to 80 million? Or what did they do? And tap into their skills and understanding and experience and culture, which you can do in a peer group, or have a coach who can say, look, you're doing brilliantly over here. That's fantastic. But tell me about how you're doing over there. Tell me more about that, because there seems to be a bit of a blind spot over there. What are you doing about that? And, and have somebody challenge you in working with you. So I think, I think it's help having help because we, you know, we tend to think um, we tend to think we can do it all ourselves, and we really can't. Yes, I I, I thought to myself as uh, when I was at Pier One and we got some executive coaching, I thought I wish I'd known these things earlier. You know, because they they help not just at work, but just in life. You know, some of the skills you learn, you know, be a better leader, be a better father, be a better husband, what, you know, be a better friend, whatever it is, it's just, it's just great. You think, God, oh, it's 30 years that there's stuff here that wasn't that complicated, but I just didn't know. That's right. That's right. It's life leadership, isn't it? It's not just leading. It it's life leadership. So what books, when you were researching? Hmm. Or maybe there's some stuff you've just finished or you're in the middle of and it's amazing. What what do you think people on this journey on leadership, what should people picking up and getting inspiration from? I always, and I've mentioned it already, the one book I'd say, if you don't read any other books, if you only had read one book, and it's such an easy book to read because it's a story, which is what most Lencioni's uh, books are, is The Five Dysfunctions of a Team, which is all about how to how to run a high performing team or a cohesive team as he would say and to me in an organization if you've got a high performing top team your business is going to work if you've got a dysfunctional top team your business probably isn't going to work so i'd start there yeah i I don't think the company can outperform the top team no no, exactly. <laughs> it's, not, it's not miraculously going to happen. And 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 Jim Collins, who'd be the second book I'd recommend, and many of his books. Jim Collins says you should be able to look around the top table at your top team every year and say ninety percent of the people are in the right seat on this bus. And not only that, you've got confidence that they're a different, better person than they were a year ago. Yeah. And if you can't say that, then you know have a look in the mirror and actually i'd have a jim collins book uh secondly which would be be 2.0 which stands for beyond entrepreneurship 2.0 he wrote a book with his own mentor bill lazier when he was at stanford um called beyond entrepreneurship and he so that was written decades ago and he pulled it out of the woodwork and he started looking at it and thinking mm, it's not a bad book i wrote all those years ago maybe i should look at it again and because it was the, I think it was the anniversary of Bill Lazier's death, and he started looking back at it. And then he thought, you know what? There's nothing wrong with this book, although it's old, but there are things I'd like to add to it. So what he did is he wrote the 2.0 version, and all the white pages are the new book, and all the gray pages are the original book. It's fascinating. And so it's just a great leadership book. It gives you soup to nuts, as the Americans would say, everything in there. I really enjoyed that. And the thing that I took away from that was that, um, and I think he reflects on it as well, is that 
getting the right people on the bus, nothing trumps. Yeah. You know, you can have an amazing strategy, wrong people. You know, you've got to have the right people no matter what you do. And if you're going to obsess about anything, obsess about that. Yeah. I remember being at a, a, a big conference, thousand people in the room, and the guy on the stage said, and it was all CEOs in the room. He said, um, put your hand in the air if you've sacked somebody in your business who's not been performing that well too early. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone looked, kind of looked in the air and looked around and went, hmm, I see where he's going with this. Um, and, and we all allow people to stay on the bus who aren't performing too long. Well, particularly if they're a cultural fit. Absolutely. You know, because we're yeah. human beings and we... And there's a, I've started using this phrase that I stole from somebody else, sevens kill your business. Because yeah. it's that, they're just sometimes they're good enough and you have hope and aspiration for them to be an eight, nine or a 10. But frankly, heart, hand on heart, they're really a five or a six who are having the odd good day. It's, it's, it's brilliant, this conversation. And Netflix have this, I don't know if you've read much about Netflix, but Netflix say... They have this keeper's test, and they say to people, if this guy who's in your team wanted to resign, how hard would you try to keep them? And if your answer is not very hard, then you get rid of them now. And I thought, that's, that's quite harsh, actually. But it's an interesting aha moment for some people, I think. I, I won't name him or his organisation, but I will say that somebody who I've, He's been in the audience several times when I've spoken and I've said, you know, would you enthusiastically rehire them? And knowing what you know about them now, would you hire them again tomorrow? And every time he comes up to me afterwards, he goes, it's a bad day tomorrow for somebody. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because he just, it just, every time it's just that sort of, it, he it forces him to pause and reflect and realize that there's something he already knows. Yeah. He just hasn't done anything about. Yeah. 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 My third book, it's called Ikigai. And Ikigai is a Japanese word for a worthwhile life. And at, at the heart of that is the Japanese have a model, have a view of having a life on purpose. And uh, it's a great book written about really Japanese culture, Japanese way of life. And it came to me from another book I was reading called The Blue Zones by Dan Butner and National Geographic about the people around the world who live the longest, the most centenarians. And one of the places out of the five blue zones is Okinawa. And in Okinawa, and so the blue zones basically said, the people who live the longest around the world do these nine things, have these nine things in common. One of them is they have a purpose. So the, these people in the blue zones who live till 100 plus, they get up bed in the morning, apart from eating well and exercising and all the things you'd expect, they all have a purpose. When they get up in the morning, they say, I'm on purpose. I'm doing what I love. This is where I should be. And Ikigai is all about having a purpose and finding your purpose. And I think that's a really essential quality for not only leaders, but actually everyone. Yeah. And also there's a community in there, which I remember if I'm uh, I can't remember how many years is it, but one of the tests that somebody did of that was they looked nuns writing diaries and mm. and unhappy nuns died earlier than happy nuns. Yeah. And that's, yeah, that,
that you know it's just it's just fascinating isn't it isn't it getting up and doing oh he's well so do you have any plans to retire ever no i don't understand that word do you know in japanese there is no word for retirement so i'm always thinking what shall i do next year shall i and you know one of the setups said i'm doing too much coaching so i will cut down on coaching um the, the thing I've got is I've got a list of things I do, and I love them all. It's a bit like children. Which one are you going to cut off? You know. So I, but I do need to think carefully because I do need to cut something because there's only me and you know I do obviously like most people who do what I do. You know, if I get a piece of work and it's great and I can't do it or I might need some help, then I'll bring Ben Wales in or some other people that I really trust who I think you know are, are, are really good with with leadership teams and so on. So. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I do, I, I will, you know, we brought a house in Spain last year. We want to spend more time next year in Spain, which we will, uh, a lot of the, I only accept coaching online now, for example. So, um, uh, and I do some workshops, some speaking engagements online because I have clients in different countries, so I, I can do that. And, um, but you know, I love, I, you know, I love swimming. I love, uh, cycling. I love, um, running. I love golf. So, you know, I love being with my wife and my kids. So I do have to have a balance and it sounds like I don't, but I have pretty good balance too. Yeah. Brilliant. I'm, I'm with you. I, I've got no plan. You know, I interviewed Joel, uh, who's Vern Harnish's speech coach a couple of months ago on the podcast and he's 80. Um, and he said, he said the worst thing about getting old is your friends retire and then they have nothing to talk to you about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so i hadn't yeah, thought about that I as, I hadn't thought that. about that as a downside so but his his, his advice at 80 he's still semi-pro water skiing at 80 amazing and he said his advice his advice was just to keep going yeah i agree because he doesn't want to turn into one of his friends <laughs> <laughs> great advice really great advice ian it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you today thanks very much it's been lovely i just it didn't seem like a podcast I'm like a, a fireside chat it's been great <laughs> Really enjoyed it. Excellent. And you've got, you'll make your train to Yorkshire. Have a great, uh, have a great, have a great trip. Thanks very much. That's great. Cheers, Dominic. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.